All right, everybody, if you'll come on in and find the seat, we will get started. And there are a new set of notes for this week's lesson that you should have received on the way in, but we got, have guys covering each section with notes in hand if you need some. So any section anywhere where you didn't get notes, please put your hand up. One of the guys will get some to you. We have some folks coming in here, Larry. Did you guys get notes on the way in? Very good. Everybody got them? Good. Good work, guys. Thanks very much. We'll get into those notes in just a moment. I want to make some very quick announcements, things that are coming up. Tomorrow night is the uh, Heart to Heart Ladies Meeting, Women's uh, Study, and it's just the second of the Women's Studies, so if you haven't been a part of that, you haven't missed much as yet. So all ladies are invited and encouraged to attend tomorrow night at 7 o'clock here at the Ministry Center. Next Saturday from 5 to 7 is the Enchanted Trails event. We always get hundreds of people, literally hundreds of people from the community to come to that. So it's a big uh, event to let people know we're back here, just introduce them to that there is a church here in case God works in their lives for them to consider a church in the future. They'll have us, have us in mind. And it's always a good time. The kids have a great time with it as well. A lot of work put into it. So we've been advertising that. One of the ways we've advertised it is with door hangers. A uh, week ago Saturday, yeah, a week ago yesterday, uh, some folks met here, took a route or routes, and then went out into the community and put the door hangers on. But we still have a number of those door hangers and routes that are left. And we've got six days in order to, to get those out there. So if you weren't able to come a week ago Saturday, you can take one of the routes and do it sometime this week uh, at your convenience. On the Welcome Center desk out in the lobby are the, the routes. If you take one, you can take more, but if you take one, I'm told they're, they're, they take about a half an hour in order to do. I have one uh, myself uh, to do. So take one or more of those and then do it. You're not confronting anybody. You're not knocking on the door. You're just hanging the advertisement on the door. If it says no solicitation, then don't solicit. Just skip that house. Don't walk on people's lawns uh, to go from one to the other. Just don't do anything offensive and you'll be okay. And uh, just so you can invite people to this outreach event. Five to seven is the uh, time. It's an open house. One concern I have is we advertise that five to seven like it's a two-hour event. It's not a two-hour event. It's, uh, you can come any time between 5 and 7 uh, for that. It's this coming uh, Saturday. And then we have our marriage retreat, and that is just now a few weeks away. It's going to be on Friday night, uh, November the 11th, and then Saturday the, the 12th. It's going to be at Gull Lake. Gull Lake is an outstanding facility, has outstanding food and accommodations, but they need to know who is going to uh, attend, and we need to know that this week. So if you've been thinking about it, you need to make a decision, and on our website, you can register for that. We've not scheduled a guest speaker for it intentionally. Uh, we have in the past, but we had an entire summer of instruction for our married couples, and most of you participated in that. So this we wanted to reserve primarily then for you and uh, relationship and enjoying the, the facility and each other and other couples. Saturday morning, though, Though we don't have a guest speaker, we are going to have a, a panel discussion uh, with a combined, I mentioned the other day, over 100 years worth of marriage represented on the panel and, and parenting uh, advice and in, uh, some Q&A time. So I hope that will be helpful. Last announcement is our next baptism is 
November the 27th. November 27th, if you have never been baptized, which means you have never been immersed in water to represent the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ. Uh, baptism, the word baptism is used for things other than that, as you know. Uh, you may have been baptized as an infant, uh, having had water sprinkled on you. It's not baptism as the Bible de describes. And my phone's talking to me. I, felt I was hearing voices for a little bit here, and it was throwing me off, and then I realized it's emanating from my, my phone. So I am now turning the volume completely down. I have no idea who it is that's trying to talk to me. I hope it's not an emergency. So baptism on November 27th. We try to make it easy for you to let us know that you've never been baptized and go through uh, what needs to be covered to make sure you're a candidate for that, that you've come to Jesus Christ as Savior. It's a one-page application. You can pick up that application at our Welcome Center desk. You fill that out, give that to them. They get it to me. I'll get with you, and we'll go from there. All right, those are our announcements. This is, as you see on the front cover, lesson number three of our Worry-Free Decision-Making Series. This is our fifth session, but it's our third third lesson, and we will take a couple of weeks to go through this lesson as well. But as the name of the series suggests, we want decision-making to be worry-free, and so far in our series, we've presented a couple of things to help us to do that. One is we've made a distinction between two aspects of the will of God in Scripture. There is the moral will of God and there is His sovereign will. If you've been with us for these previous weeks, then you, you've heard us talk about that. If you've not been able to be here for any of the other sessions, those are all, like all of our sermons and lessons that we do midweek, that we do on Sunday morning, those are on our website, so I encourage you to go back and listen and catch up. But we've made this distinction between God's moral will and His sovereign will. His sovereign will is whatsoever comes to pass, everything that happens is in God's decreed will. God has determined that it would happen. That includes the good, the bad, the ugly, everything that happens. And so uh, it's humorously said sometimes, if you want to know God's will for today, ask me tomorrow, but that's referring to his sovereign will. It's whatever happened the day before. Now, the thing about God's sovereign will is it is not known to us until it happens. God's sovereign will is known to God and God alone, and then we know it after it transpires. There is the second aspect of God's will, which is His moral will, and that is made known, that is revealed to us. And it's what God wants, it's what God desires because of the kind of God He is, because of His character. It is made known to us so that we know what we should do in order to align our choices with with God's desires. But we get it wrong. We all get it wrong. We all get the moral will of God wrong at times. And that doesn't help the worry-free part, does it? <laughs> because if God has revealed His moral will, I'm supposed to pursue His moral will, but at the same time I've got the fear of the possibility that I'm going to get His moral will wrong, and not just the possibility, the absolute certainty that as a fallen person, as a sinful person, even though a Christian person, you will get it wrong. We all do at times. So how does that distinction between the sovereign will and the, of God and the moral will of God help us get to worry-free? Here's, here's what we've said. 
that the beautiful news is the sovereign will of God overrules and uses our failures so that you can confidently make your decisions in line with what we have been laying out from God's Word and will continue today, confidently make those knowing that even when you mess it up, God graciously works through even, even that. So our first help in making our decisions become worry-free is to understand this relationship between the sovereign will of God and His, his moral will. But here's the, the second one. God's moral will, God's revealed will, what it is we are supposed to do because it's what He desires, reflecting what He is like, that will is readily available. So you don't have to grope around in darkness to find it. In fact, you don't have to find God's will. He wrote a book with it in it. That's what we mean about it being revealed. It's made known to us. God has given to us. So God's moral will is revealed. He's told us our purpose to carry out His mission through His church until He comes. That's what He's told us in His Word. Carry out His mission through His church until He comes. If you were with us for our first hour, our brother preached very powerfully on that very thing. That's what we're about. That's what we're here for. That's what we do. Those are, that's the eternal purpose for which we are to, to give our lives. And so, that should be a comforting thing. Because it means I'm not groping in the darkness. I don't have to figure it out. I know what it is. Therefore, I need to make my decisions about all things on the basis of whether or not they advance that mission. That takes some of the worry, a lot of the worry out of it, if not all of it. Okay, I know why I'm here. I know what I'm supposed to do. Now I'm going to make decisions accordingly. So who am I going to marry? I'm going to marry, yes, according to God's moral will in the sense that he says that Christians marry Christians. So I already know who I'm not going to marry. <laughs> I'm not going to marry a non-Christian. And, you know, I want somebody that uh, on a personal level that you're comfortable with and they're comfortable with you and all of that. That's all true. But all uh, that is and all the many other things that we call compatibility and all of that are much less, much less, way down the list from this. That as I'm looking for a partner to, to marry, I'm looking for a Christian mate who's committed to the Lord Jesus Christ and with whom I can partner in the mission. With whom I can partner in the mission. Are we on the same page with this? Are we going in the same? Well, I'm not asking you if we're on the same page. I'm assuming, but, but you know, you're dating. Are we on the same page? This is what we're about. This is what God's called me to do. This is what he's called us to do. And so I need to know whether you are a nominal American Christian or whether or not you're a real one. <laughs> and whether you, as we were exhorted this morning, do you really believe this stuff? And are you really committed? And so are we going to be partners in this? And we're going to arrange our lives then around it. And I choose, I choose career and job and all of that in a way to try to maximize my participation in, in the mission. A school to attend to help me, yes, have a career that will fit into that category, or uh, maybe it's training for very direct involvement in the mission, but I choose that according, I choose church according to that. 
And I give my treasure and my time and my talents to that. I arrange my life around that. You go, oh man, where does, where does like life fit into this? If, if, if that's what you're thinking, where does life fit into this? Well, we're not quite getting it if we're thinking that. Because what I'm describing to you, friends, in pursuing the mission of Jesus is life for the Christian. That is life. We love that. That's what we want to do. Now, you may be saying by that, but like, where does like the more mundane stuff, like, you know, going on vacation? Can you go on vacation? Can I make a a worry-free decision to go on vacation? And and I would suggest to you that you make that decision based upon the, the mission that you make a decision to rest in order to work. We don't work in order to rest. We rest in order to work as Christians. We're in the mission. You need that rest. You're frail. I am too. So, so we need to do that. And so you make, a, you make a strategic decision, missional decision that says, yes, I need to do that. And while I'm doing that, if I have a family, I'm going to use that time to bond with them and I'm going to use, by God's grace, that bonding with them in order to, as my first mission field, use our relationship for me to have the credibility to give the gospel to them, model it before them, see them come to the Lord Jesus and join us in this partnership. So yeah, vacation, everything fits in. But only if you have the lenses to see all of it in terms of the purpose for which God has given us. Now, we've seen proper approaches to decision-making are not these three things. A few weeks ago, I said, you know, there are these ways that, various ways that people do their decision-making. One of those is outcome-based decision-making. That is, a decision is good, it's right, if it turns out right. Uh, Opportunity-based decision-making. I'm looking for God's will in kind of circumstances, and if a convergence of circumstances comes together, then I assume that must be a God thing, and therefore that's what God wants me to do, and so I make, I make the choice. Opportunity-based. Feeling-based decision-making. I feel like it's the right. I've got sort of a spiritual hunch about this. I have a peace about it, therefore it must be the right thing. All of those are not what the Bible teaches about our decision-making. There are verses in the Bible that are used out of context to suggest all of those. And in one of our last sessions, if not our last session, in a few weeks, we will go through some of those verses together. But here's the proper approach to decision-making. It is purpose-based decision-making. It's it's not outcome-based. It's not opportunity-based. It's not feeling-based. It's purpose-based. And we get that purpose. Where do we get that purpose? Uh, that we are on a mission and we are here for a limited period of time in order to pursue that mission and to give ourselves to it. Where do we get that? We get that from God's moral revealed will in the Bible. So it's not Ken making up what the mission is. It's not you making up what the mission is. God has given us the mission in His Word. It means then I need to know how to use the book in which his revealed, his moral will is contained. Unfortunately, many misuse God's moral revealed will, the Bible. But I can only benefit from that 
revealed will of God in the Bible if that tool that he has given is used as directed. And that's the subject then of today's lesson. Top of page 14. God's word and God's will. At the heart of Christianity is the book called the Bible. In it, God has revealed everything we need to know about himself and what he desires from our lives. The Bible was given by God to tell us who God is and what we should do with that information. So we need to understand first off that the Bible is not just a book. It is the book called the Bible, but not just. It's the source of truth from which Christianity is derived. And so it's logically prior to all other Christian beliefs. Without the Bible, we wouldn't know about the Trinity, Christ, salvation, the church, and so on. And that's reflected in the creeds of most evangelical churches, including our church here. The very first article in our statement of faith says, We believe the Holy Scriptures to be the very Word of God, the product of the breath of God, and thus verbally inspired in all parts, and therefore holy, that is fully without error, as originally given by God. Complete in 66 books of the Bible, altogether infallible and sufficient in themselves as our only rule of faith and practice, the only standard by which all human conduct, creeds, and opinions should be tried. First article in our statement of faith. And most of you here believe that, at least intellectually. But if we're honest, if we're honest about it, Practically, it doesn't always happen that way. I mean, this is saying in very, very direct language that, that the standard, the only standard of human conduct, the only rule of not only faith but practice is the Bible. And yet many of us go through our lives making choices that are unrelated to what God has revealed in the Bible. They're what we were brought up doing. They're what we see other people doing. Rather than a conscious, intentional look at what God says about the mission to which he's called us and making decisions accordingly. Despite this, middle of that page, doctrinal commitment to the authority of Scripture, there are a number of ways in which the Bible's authority is undermined in daily Christian living by very average Christians, including this matter of discerning God's will. We see the Bible as a book of sayings. And so it is sort of a poor Richard's almanac written by Ben Franklin of, you know, little uh, drops of wisdom that you pick up when you need them. You know, so you need to have a topical reference so that when you're, you know, when you're sick, look up some verses that will comfort you when you're sick and find some, some sayings related to that. Or it's a collection of stories with, with morals to them, kind of like an Aesop's fables kind of, kind of thing. And so you see what happened in the lives of, you know, of other people, and you teach yourself and you teach your children to, to avoid that. We're going to see that all of these have some truth to them, but none of them are the purpose for the Bible. Or the Bible as a book of recipes to make life taste better. <laughs> Notice the quote here. The theological statements coming out of modern culture look more like recipes for living than declared truths about God. 
transcendent theology, which flows out of the big picture, has been replaced by recipe theology. That's a way of thinking that keeps its focus on the particulars of life. The center of transcendent theology is God, His character, and His purpose. Recipe theology focuses on man, his needs, and well-being. My quarrel with recipe theology is not with the biblical principles it affirms or with its requirement that we follow them. It's rather with its tendency to make biblical principles into a formula for success. God has not written a cookbook for living with recipes for every dish we may want to prepare. He responds to our individual situations by inviting us to participate in a story that's bigger than our lives. Recipe theology studies the bits and pieces of life to help us tell our story better. But God invites us to join Him in telling His. And so, ask yourself, is that the way I approach the Bible? Do I approach the Bible as God's story into which I fit? Not, how do I fit God into my story? Top of page 15, people see the Bible as a a conversation piece. Lots of people are interested in the Bible. The Bible has had effect on human history, on cultures the world over. There are idioms, there are figures of speech that people use all the time that they don't realize come out of the Bible. Made it by the skin of their teeth. Comes out of the book of Job. But most people don't know that. We've got all kinds of, of those. So it's, it's a, an interesting conversation piece. And there are lots of interesting things to converse about with regard to the Bible, but it's not the purpose. The Bible has a prescription to fix our, our wants and our feelings. You know, or worst of all, though, I guess the Bible is a paperweight. You know, it's the coffee table. Back, back in the day, it was the big coffee table Bible that was an ornament that never got opened. But all of them are a very inadequate view, way to view Scripture. They all contain some kernel of truth except the paperweight idea. But the Bible is far more than any of these and even far more than all of them combined. It is the revelation of God to us and therefore it is perfect and without error as it claims for itself as you see on page 15. 2 Timothy chapter 3, it is God-breathed and useful for teaching and rebuking and correcting and training in righteousness. But here's the purpose for which it was given, so that it wasn't given for for teaching or rebuking or correcting and training. It does those things. But the reason it does those things, it's useful for those things, is so that, for the purpose that, we will be thoroughly equipped for every good work. That's why God gave us the Bible. And it didn't come from humanity, it didn't come from people, it came from God. No prophecy of Scripture says 2 Peter 1, came about by the prophet's own interpretation of things. It never had its origin in the human will, but prophets, though human, spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. So it is given to equip us to live life, making choices that are pleasing to the God who created us and the God to whom we will answer. So if you're going to have worry-free decision-making, and you most definitely can You don't need to worry about your decisions if you understand that the sovereign will of God in the lives of His people overrules your inevitable mistakes and even sins. So 
rely on that rather than on your genius <laughs> or your know-how to always get it right. You won't always get it right. And then secondly, thank God that in the title of the little book that we recommended at the beginning, and we recommended several, but one of those was by John MacArthur, we have it in our resource center, found God's will. Found, colon, God's will. God's will's not missing. You don't have to hunt for it. He wrote a book. He gave it to you. And that takes the worry out. Okay, there it is. This is God's story. I fit into it. Now I need to my, align my life accordingly. So that's why we say, middle of page 15, the Bible is God's story. It reveals to us who God is. Every person, according to the Bible, knows that there is a God. Every person knows that there is a God. Now, people can convince themselves over a long period of time, long enough that they don't believe that there's a God, that they really believe it. So I'm not saying that the person who claims to be an atheist is lying when they say there is no God. They really believe there is no God. But they have access to the truth that, in fact, there is. Every person does, according to the Bible. This knowledge is both intuitive, that is, it's built into humanity, as well as obvious, that is, it can be seen in the world around us. God has made His existence clear to all people, Romans chapter 1. The wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all the godlessness and wickedness of people who suppress the truth by their wickedness since... What may be known about God is plain, because God has made it plain. Since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, eternal power, divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood from what has been made, so people are without excuse. Yet, that knowledge is insufficient. First, because people in their sinfulness ignore it, they suppress it, they hold it down. And second, because it does not tell us enough about God so that we can fully understand who He is. It tells us these things. God has given these things, Acts chapter 17, as we saw last week in, the, in our series in the book of Acts, where Paul goes to Athens, Greece, and he says, God has made the world, He has made Himself known in that creation so that you might seek after Him. That's what people naturally should do. But because of sin... It doesn't have that effect. And so if you're only left with there is, this, there is this God and He is powerful, you don't pursue more, you don't seek Him, then you're not going to understand who He is. General revelation, as it's called, in creation does not reveal to us how to get to God, to have a relationship with Him. Without the Bible, we would still know that we live in a broken world, but not know why it's broken nor how to fix it. The Bible reveals to us truth about the only God that exists so that we can know Him, and it reveals to us what God is doing in His world. One author said, one of the most universal human impulses can be summed up in a familiar four-word plea, tell me a story. So the Bible is a story, but it's the story of God's work in human history. In fact, almost half of the Bible are true stories about people and their relationships with God. Leland Reichen says, imagine yourself trying to describe the content of the Bible to someone who has never read the Bible. You would very quickly find yourself describing what happens in the Bible, and to tell what happens is to tell a story. Think about that. 
If you had somebody in front of you and they've never read the Bible and they say, tell me what the Bible's about, you're going to find yourself telling stories about what happened to people so that they can know what it's about. What happened to the first couple? God made a couple, Adam and Eve, and here's what happened with them. And then as a result of that, sin enters God's world and everything goes south and you see how south it went and how quickly in the, in the next chapter after they sin, chapter 4 of Genesis, because you have the first murder. And then the Bible says that you know, people begat more people and begat more people who have the same tendency towards sin. The world becomes populated with those kinds of people. And then you have a man named Noah and his family. And the Bible says in the sixth chapter of the Bible that God saw that the thoughts and the intents of the hearts of humanity were only evil continually. And God judged, and you're telling the story of Noah. And then you tell the story of Ham, Shem, and Japheth, and the progeny of Shem, and a Shemite who came from, from, from Shem named Abraham. And now it focuses on Abraham. And here, But it's the story of all these people. You would be telling a story. It tells us how God created the world in perfection, how sin came into the world and brought death and destruction. It tells how mankind has searched to find God and has invented their own ways to try to have a relationship with God. It tells how God, in love, sent His Son, Jesus, to die for sin, to do for us what we could not do for ourselves, namely satisfy the debt brought by sin and to have eternal life with God. And the Bible gives, third paragraph there, fourth paragraph, gives us a consistent philosophy of history. It provides an explanation for why things happened as they did during the time in which God was giving the Bible. Think of it as a history book in which the God of the universe, who knows all things, has picked out the important highlights to preserve for us in this book. Out of everything God could have told us, He chose to tell us what's in the Bible. This we see, the story of God in human history. And the Bible not only reveals who God is, what God is doing, but our call to be in the story. The Bible makes known, reveals the calling that God extends to humanity for each person that He has made and now owns by right of not only creation but redemption if you belong to Him as a Christian. He issues a call to be part of that story. The mission for which we have been called, as we talked about last time, and as you heard first hour, is the mission to participate with God in His purposes in human history. God calls us to be part of something bigger than ourselves and our own interests. He calls us to be in His story, first by having salvation in Jesus, and then by participating in the mission. And each decision of life is to be built around our part in God's story. Look at this quote at the bottom of page 16. We often treat the Bible as if it were the ultimate how-to book, an encyclopedia of practical wisdom and insight, but the Bible is more like a novel. I can dip into my Encyclopedia Britannica wherever I want. That was back when there were actually things called encyclopedias. And, you know, now you just look it up online. But I can you know, dip in wherever I want, read a few paragraphs, pick out the information that will benefit me, and then close it. But with a novel, I can't do that. I must relate every passage, every description or conversation or turn of events to the overall plot. Otherwise, it makes no sense, at least not its intended sense. Would you agree? I mean, my observation 
decades of ministry, my observation is that's the way most Christians approach the Bible. It's an encyclopedia, kind of look stuff up. A bit here, a bit there. But never put together. It's the reason, friends, because of that observation over many years, it's the reason that when we started this church, we determined that we would urge every person who comes into our church to first do a couple of things. Take a couple of classes that will help you put it together. So every other year, I teach how to get the most out of your Bible. I'm teaching it now, Wednesday nights. Got a good group of folks in that class. Actually, there's a lot of them. That's what I mean by good. I actually don't actually know how good they are, but, they're, but there's a bunch of them. It's a good group. And we urge everybody, and many of you have done that. If you have not, you need to. How to get the most out of your Bible. It goes through the story of the Bible so that you have a survey of it. You know the story. You can get an idea of where you fit into it then. And then we look at how to interpret it and how to apply it. And then we have a second foundational class that we do the alternate year. Master Plan for Life. It's a systematic theology for regular people. It just goes through the major doctrines of the Bible and seeks to make application of those to, to our lives. If you can get those two things down, you are now equipped better than the person who has known Christ for 30 years but has never put the story together and just pursues it like it's a dictionary or an encyclopedia. And so I encourage you, I strongly encourage you to avail yourself of those. And if you can't make it physically, we have the recordings. As I said earlier, we have all our recordings online. So think about yourself. Bottom of page 16. Which of those above seven ways, now there are only six listed, the seventh one is the right way <laughs> that I've described. So which one of those most closely resembles your own view of Scripture. And, you know, ask yourself that and answer that as honestly about yourself as you can. How do I approach Scripture? Do I, do I know what the storyline of the Bible is? Do I find myself in it? And I see that God has had and has and will until He returns and the consummation of human history. He has this plot line and I'm to be a part of it? Do I see it that way? And do I read it that way then? And, then? and then in turn, see my circumstances in my own life through the lens of that. That has a transformative, a completely transformative effect on you. Because now you're looking at life completely differently. One of the greatest blessings a Christian can have, I mean, there are a myriad, myriad of them, but one of the greatest blessings that Christians have is that we know that every day we get up to pursue something that's eternal. It lasts forever. I'm not just in the rat race. I'm not just killing time. I'm doing something that matters forever. You say, well, yeah, you are. You're a pastor. No, we are. We are. Us. Together. Everybody has a role to play. We all fit into the plot. Every last one of us. You heard our brother preach in this first hour, you know, and he was talking about how the Bible says, look, in a fallen world, there's going to be suffering that goes with that, but is the gospel worth it? Is Jesus worth it? And, you know, he was <laughs> describing, you know, the things that the Apostle Paul went through. And, you know, we've all read about the things that brothers and sisters have gone through in human history and go through in other parts of the world. 
And I, I, I really just have, to, I just have to say this, okay? You go through that, you think about all that. Is it really worth it? Do I really believe it's all worth it? And then ask yourself, am I willing to serve in the nursery? Am I willing to be like a Sunday school teacher? It's it's because we got to be careful that we don't leave it out here. That we don't say, oh yeah, yeah, there's there's that suffering stuff and there, you know, some people do that. And is, is the gospel worth it? Yes, the gospel's worth it. I'm, gonna, I'm willing to sacrifice for the sake of the mission of Christ. And then it, it comes home, and just like in small stuff, like can you serve? So ask yourself that, all of us. Can we do that? I, I don't serve in the nursery. They've never asked me to serve in the nursery, okay? The only, thing, the only thing the nursery people ask me to do is get done in time, okay? Because nursery work is hard, and we want to get the babies out of there as, as soon as we can. Top of page 17. I said the Bible's got to be used as directed, though. So it will do what it says it will do. It's designed for what God has given it for, but only if used as directed, so I say warranty void. (laughs) The purpose for which God gave the Bible is to enable us to know God's will and to do it. Doctrine is not an end in itself. Rather, God has communicated truth to us so that we might better serve Him. And again, the so that is the purpose clause of 2 Timothy 3.16. But following are some ways in which the purpose of the Bible is sometimes unintentionally undermined. One is giving only nominal authority to the Bible. Nominal just means in name only. So we would say, yes, the Bible is the final authority for all matters of faith and practice. It is the arbiter of all human conduct. We would, we would assent to that. But if we're not careful, we can do that only in name, in a nominal way. We sometimes accord authority to the Bible in name only because we don't believe it is relevant to every aspect of life. That is, although we mentally acknowledge the Bible as that final authority in practice, it's not that way. Author David Henderson explains the difference between actual relevance and functional relevance. The word relevance traces back to this medieval Latin word, which means to bear upon. Something is relevant when it has to do with my circumstances, when it bears upon my questions and struggles. For something to be relevant to me, two things need to be true. First, whatever it is, whether a talk, a book, a letter, an instruction guide, it needs to be pertinent to my life. It has to address the issues I'm wrestling with, answer the questions I'm asking, meet my needs, but that's not enough. Something is not relevant for me unless I see and understand the pertinence. Unless I can make the connection, unless I can see This book or conversation connects with my life. It really isn't helpful. It isn't relevant at all. And he says, I call these actual and functional relevance. Actual relevance gets at at whether a message has anything to do with my life. Functional relevance has to do with whether I'm able to see the connection. So does the Bible's story, plot line, the mission described therein, Does that have anything to do with you? 
Does that have anything to do with what you're going through? Does that have anything to do with what's happening in your life right now? And you know, if you take the encyclopedia approach to the Bible, very often the answer is going to be, nah. I mean, I'm trying to figure out, I'm trying to figure out how I'm going to pay the bills this coming week. And the pastor, you know, preached on ceremonial cleansings for leprosy in the book of Leviticus. How do those, how do those relate together, okay? Well, if you're somebody who sees the plot line, then you see that the whole reason that there are ceremonial cleansings for leprosy is because of a thing called sin. You would see that larger connection. You would see that the whole reason that we that we struggle with allocating our, our resources or having enough resources is also because of the Bible's plot line. It's, it's all related to this thing called fallenness. We all fit into that. Now the question then is, yeah, both of those relate to me. Both of those relate to my fallenness. Paying the bills, ceremonial cleansings for, for leprosy, the fact that there is leprosy and sickness in this world. Then the question is, well, what am I going to do with that? How am I going to address those aspects of fallen existence in a, in a fallen world. How am I going to view them? What am I going to do with them? And the Bible speaks to that. What am I going to do with them? How am I going to pay the bills this week? The Bible speaks to God being in control of all things, does it, does it not? God supplying the needs of his, of his people, does it not? As the Bible describes this God, it describes this God that way and His relationship with His people that way. And as the Bible describes sickness and disease in, in the world, it describes a God who is at work redeeming all that is wrong in this fallen world, every last bit of it. In the words of the hymn we sing mostly at Christmas, far as the curse is found. He is, going to re is in the process of redeeming and will ultimately redeem his world. So everything you do and it's going on in your life fits into this larger story, but only if you see it as the larger story rather than the encyclopedia. It'll only have functional relevance if you approach it that way. It certainly has actual relevance and is the very reason for which God gave it. The bottom of page 15, I talk about the maker's diet and emaciated Christians. And I go on the following pages to talk about why people are emaciated. They're not, they're not fed and built up by the Word of God the way they could and should be because we do not see it as His story and our place within it. And some of the additional things that keep us from doing that, like mysticism and pietism, and I will explain what those are next time. Okay, let's uh, bow now. Thank God for the opportunity to worship Him, ask Him to go with us as we, as we depart, okay? Father, we do thank You for the blessings of this day to have been together with Your people, to have been able to sing praise to You, give back to You, read Your Word, hear Your Word proclaimed. Lord, help us to be people who are doers of the Word then and not hearers only having seen what you tell us in your word about what it is we are to be about and what goes along with that, then help us to ask very candidly and, and honestly the, the question and answer honestly, 
whether or not we believe it's worth it as our brother posed. So help me to do that. Help my brothers and sisters to do that. And Lord, I, I pray that all of us will answer in the affirmative. Christ is worth it. The gospel is worth it. And therefore, I want to align my life around the story of God in his world. And I want to be an intentional and active and joyful part of the plot line. Help us then to begin making our decisions accordingly, aligning our lives accordingly for something that lasts forever and not just for time. Lord, help us to contemplate these things as we confront the circumstances of our lives and how those things that are seemingly mundane, that all of them fit into what you are doing and shaping in us, in our part of your world. Help us to see it that way in ways that perhaps we didn't this past week. And therefore, you and what you are doing will be at the forefront of our thinking. Bring us back together, we ask you, next Lord's Day. We pray all of this in the name of Jesus. Amen.